Welcome to Wa Wonders Why, a companion podcast to Smart Enough to Know Better. This episode is entitled Whether the Weather Will Wither the Weather. And I have to be honest, it's not actually about weather, it's about climate and anthropomorphic climate change. Don't touch that dial, please don't go, please don't run away. At some point, we just have to have a conversation about the billion-ton gorilla in the atmosphere, that is carbon dioxide. Back in October, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, released their report about what is happening in our atmosphere to global warming, climate change in general, and basically what needs to be done. It was a 1.5 degree uh, increase. Are we going to make that increase as high as it's going to be? And it didn't look really good, unfortunately, when we look at that report about what we're actually doing in this world, though some things are being done, not enough seems to be done. I had to read through the report and found it quite confusing. There's a lot of things in there. And then I read other people's takes on it and it got very exciting. Everything from it's literally the end of the world uh, to it's all fine and everything in the middle. So as we do here at Wild Wonders Why, I went to find an expert and I was lucky enough to find Dr. Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick. Enjoy. Sometimes, especially at this time of year, we're told don't talk about politics and or religion because it makes the family upset. There's a new one that we're not meant to talk about, it seems, a lot of the time, and that's climate change. But I think that's a really dangerous idea because if you don't talk about things, you don't learn about them, and you haven't got any facts to actually back up what needs to be done or what's been learnt by the experts, what's been studied. So to help us out, to actually get in and talk about this important thing, uh, is Dr. Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick. Uh, she is a uh, part of the Climate Change Research Centre at the University of New South Wales. Hello, Dr. Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me. No problem. So, oh dear, let's get right in. <laughs> let's get into the weeds, shall we? The yep. IPCC climate report, the 1.5 degree report, are we, I don't, I don't want to go in that hard, but are we doomed? Is that what they're trying to say? <laughs> I knew you were going to use that word. Um, <laughs> yes and no. It's Look, the report is very serious. It's saying and it's stressing quite clearly that we need to do something and we need to do something fast. Mm-hmm. And they're right. If we want to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, not only do we need to drastically reduce our emissions to nothing like the next decade, but we also have to do negative emissions, which means taking carbon out of the atmosphere and storing it somewhere. Mm. So that's that's extremely drastic. However, if we want to limit warming to 2 degrees instead of 1.5, then all we really need to do in comparison is just reduce our emissions. I mean, that, that's still a pretty hard thing to do, but it, it kind of drives home the point that the more we warm, the less we need to do in the meantime. So if we think that 5 degrees Celsius is, is a reasonable threshold to warm by, then there's not actually that much we need to do in the meantime. A lot of us would argue that that's not the right thing we need to do. Yes. In saying that, my, I guess the point I'm trying to make here is we're not completely doomed if we, do not, if, if we don't reach those thresholds. If we want to reach those thresholds, if that's what we're aiming for, which I think are very good things to aim for because it's limiting warming as much as possible, then, yes, we have a very drastic time ahead. Mm. Sure, the more we warm by, the more things in our climate may be doomed and the more things will die, but it doesn't necessarily mean the end of civilization as we absolutely know it. And that's that's what I kind of struggle with with this whole scenario of whether or not we're doomed. Yes. It kind of it, it makes the problem too big. 
for the general person to understand. You know, it makes them want to bury their heads in the sand. I completely understand why, because it's just so drastic and what's the point? Let's just not do anything about it because we're all going to die anyway. No, thank you for that. It's one of the parts of a big thing we do on this podcast is, is try and discuss things in realistic terms and to also give people hope where there is hope. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank yeah. you for saying that. I appreciate well, so, that. So basically, yeah, look, the, the more we warm by, you know, it's not that great, the less, the less good it is, but it's not too late to do anything at all. That's the point that I want to make clear. Sure. And that's kind of lost in this report. They're trying to stress and force us to do as much as possible as soon as possible, which I agree with, but it doesn't mean that we should all just, you know, give up if we don't do anything in the next decade. Right. So for those, for the audience members who don't really know, from what it seems to be is the world has already, due to um, anthropomorphic climate change, so this is proven science now, as much as anything can be proven science, of course, that the world is warming by one degree since the start of the industrialization of the world, and that's due to the carbon that we're putting into the atmosphere. Is that, is that a good summary? Exactly. So we've already warmed by one degree Celsius. Out of the Paris Conference of Parties of Politicians that occurred in 2015, they basically came out saying, let's limit global warming to well below two degrees and hopefully aim to 1.5. And what effectively this report has done is discuss, A, what, what would happen, what, what the impacts would be under those two warming thresholds, and B, what we need to do to get and to stabilise at those warming thresholds and not warm more. Fantastic. Okay. And as you're saying, we'd have to do something pretty drastic in the next 10 years to right. get to 1.5. Yeah. But if we continue along the way we are reducing, so we, so we are reducing, so a lot of the news seems oh, to be that everyone's ignoring it. Well, yeah, look, yeah, and I, I, I do agree with that to a certain extent. There have been pledges put forward. So part of the Paris Agreement was all, all of the, the, the signing parties, all of the signing countries had to put pledges forward to say how, how they were going to, by how much they were going to reduce their emissions. Hoping that we'd all get, you know, all, we'd all do enough so we could only warm to two degrees Celsius. Mm. It seems to be based on those pledges, we're probably looking at two and a half to three degrees Celsius by the end of this century. Mm. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but each half a degree is, is quite a oh, significant amount. Yeah, yeah, it depends what you're talking about, but actually, like things like the Great Barrier Reef won't be around the three degrees Celsius. So oh it goodness. does, yeah, it's, it, and, and that's, you know, I guess in that sense, that ecosystem will be doomed at that particular threshold. So it seems to be like we're doing something, but we're not quite doing enough to get where we want to be. And right. that's, I guess, the most frustrating thing. Yes. Yeah. And it does depend what country you're in. Australia's doing jack all. <laughs> Some of the European countries are really, you know, they're wanting to fix this problem. They're doing as much as they can as soon as they can. I mean, speaking as an Australian, a lot of thought is we're just a small country and, you know, let's look at other countries that are much bigger populations like India or China and what are they really doing, which actually China's doing quite a bit. So we shouldn't do anything, which I think is a really blind way of looking at it. Cause oh, it totally is. It's like saying, you know, I've you know, got one child and another one on the way, and it's like I can imagine them arguing when they're older, you know, well, she punched me first kind of thing. Yes. And that's, I can't, it's the same sort of rhetoric here that, you know, just because China or China is actually doing something, but just because America isn't doing something, which might be big brother in this scenario, we shouldn't do anything either. Mm. And I, I completely reject that because we can lead by example. Yes, we as, as a country, Australia is only responsible for 1% of global emissions, but given our population size, that's actually pretty huge mm. on a per capita basis. But we have so much resource and technology here that we could help other countries reduce our emissions, reduce their emissions. So we export a lot of coal to China, mm. a lot of coal to India. If we worked with those countries to perhaps in the future export solar panels as opposed to coal, mm-hmm. then you know it, it's 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 its ongoing effect. It's it's self propagating. So 
I, I, yeah, you know, it's not just about our emissions, it's how we're supporting the emissions of other countries as well. And this is, you made before, Australians have always put themselves forward as the, the plucky little country that could. And, you know, we, exactly. we, and in sport and even in science, we punch well above our weight. And I, I'm always surprised when in this area people say, well, we don't want to punch above our weight. You're like, why not? Why not lead? We, we love, we love being the, 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 <laughs> the people at the bottom of the world who are better than everyone else. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, quietly confident or maybe not so quietly confident. Yes. Yeah, so and, and then, and then while we're blustering in the corner, New Zealand just gets along and does it. So it's, yeah, well, that's, that's exactly right. That's it. You can draw a lot from New Zealand on this particular issue. A lot. We should follow the world should follow New Zealand in many things and many, yes. many things. Yes. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll talk about other things, how you would deal with our indigenous people. Uh, we discuss, I'll discuss that another time. That's a different podcast, yeah. I think. Yeah. <laughs> so Dr. Sarah put this really well for us. You sort of put this into context for us, the stuff we can do. What things do you think need to be done? If, if you were suddenly the head poo bar of climate change control in Australia, and what would you want the average person to know that they could do? I struggle with that because I think that'd be an awesome job to have, but then I'd have to work with the government who don't really accept climate change, so I find it yeah. very frustrating. But it's, that doesn't necessarily mean there's not things that people can do in their own daily lives. So I acknowledge that it is quite hard to live a completely green lifestyle in an Australian city or anywhere else. We struggle. We have to have two cars as much as I loathe that. Mm. We don't have solar panels on our current house, but we will in our new house kind of thing. So it is a struggle to try and do that as much as possible, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. You know, even simple things like using public transport when you can, Mm. using a fuel-efficient car or, if better yet, if you can afford a Tesla, go do that. If you've got solar panels, use them properly. So perhaps only use your air conditioning during the hot part of the day and not have it on at night when you're not generating power if you don't have a battery. Mm. (laughs) As my husband would attest, I'm really anal with turning all the lights off around the house. (laughs) The second fridge and all these gaming equipment has to be off all the time. And it doesn't just make a difference in terms of emissions. It makes a difference to your power bill as well. Mm. During a heatwave, sure, I understand people need to use their air conditioning. It gets really hot. But you don't need to have it on 18 degrees. 26, 25 or 26 degrees is copable. <laughs> you can cope in those temperatures. And you don't have to have it on in every room of your house. You know, turn the ducts off if you can. Yeah. I um, must admit, I'm, I'm going to admit something very, very, um, very shameful. I do have a habit when I, when I come home from work in the middle, especially a Perth summer, like January, when it gets to 42 degrees Celsius, it gets pretty yeah. bad. I do slam it down to like 17 degrees. Oh, um, you should do that. I know. I'm sorry. I just want everyone She's to sorry. know that the people listening, uh-huh. I, I am a bad person. No, well, yeah. Look, look, I can understand. You get home, you're boiling hot. You want to have an encore. But yeah, I, I would probably, well, as soon as I get home for those first 20 minutes, maybe 23 degrees, and then it goes up to 25 or 26. Sure. <laughs> but you don't like, and it, same with your fridges. You don't need to have them on the coldest temperature. All these things make a huge difference. Not only that, it, it, the amount of load that goes on the power system is huge during these sorts of events, mm. and it kind of frees up power for those people who really need it, say hospitals or nursing homes or things like that. So, uh, I guess I'm getting a bit off topic here, but even just making the littlest changes where you possibly can at your home really does have a huge impact on your carbon footprint. By far, that the highest emissions that we that we generate are from fossil fuel usage. So, for example, using coal for power and petrol for our cars. Mm. You can kind of eliminate those sources. We haven't completely solved the problem, but we've solved a large part of it. And let's face it, one of the things Australia has is wide brown baked land from the sun. So uh, let's say I always, I'm always amazed that Australia is not leading the world in solar power. 
Well, in terms of research, I don't know what we currently are, but we were for a while there. UNSW had a huge sector on solar panel research. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were worldwide, known, like they were known for that development. I'm not sure what's happened there. So, we, we, you know, we have the ability in solar panel, sorry, maybe not necessarily solar panel, but certainly green energy solutions are now becoming a lot cheaper than fossil fuel energy solutions. So it's a bit of a no-brainer as to why we're not going, to, you know, why aren't we going down those paths? It makes sense on so many different avenues now. Why, why are we not exploring those even further? I can't see where my power is generated. If we have coal power, then it's a long way away from where I live. You know, as a middle-class Australian, I don't get to see that. But... I will get to see the big windmills on the top of hills, or not windmills, the, the power generators I'm talking about, yeah. pa- generating power. And that upsets But I think they're beautiful. I think that it's futuristic and amazing. <laughs> I'll let you know a bit of a secret. My husband, for 12 months, actually worked on a coal mine. He didn't dig up coal. He was emergency response personnel there. Mm. And he said it was actually quite a, like a reasonably small coal mine up in, up in Queensland. Mm. And he said, you know, he never doubted the science of climate change prior to going there because he was in a relationship with me and I banged on about it all the time. <laughs> but he saw the utter devastation that that even small mine was, was causing. It's like, well, how is this not an issue? How yes. you know, Even if we had what they call clean coal, which is a complete filthy, but anyway, <laughs> how is this not destroying our natural environment? Ever since then, it kind of cemented him into understanding how this can be such a big issue. And so when one of our former politicians came out saying, I hate the sight of wind turbines. Like, well, have you seen a big fat hole in the middle of the ground? Yes. That's also not that pretty. They found a massive, you know, black coal seam right next to Parliament House. Yeah. They, they wouldn't be particularly happy about having a coal mine there. So why have it out the back of Australia when we could be using solar panels? Instead? That's right. And it's, it's just a change of perception of what's pretty and what's not pretty. And doing research into this, it seems to be that maybe large-scale power generation is not the future. It'll be smaller scale that's decentralised. Well, um, that makes sense. I mean, you know, as, as I said earlier, we're about to move house and our new house has solar panels that we can't wait to use and upgrade. Hmm. We can all do that. We have the technology now, and it makes sense. You save money. Yes, it costs a bit to, to outlay, but you, hmm. you save money in the long run, and then you're not relying on a system that can potentially fail in a time that you need your power most. We've talked about what people can do in their houses. A big one, it seems to be, according to the IPCC report, the 100 companies are responsible for a, a large proportion of these of the amount of carbon going into the atmosphere. Would it be fair to say that... To get real change, people need to lobby their local governments, state governments, and federal government? Oh, absolutely. That can't hurt at all. I mean, that's how change is generated, right, in the political system. You don't <laughs> just write a polite letter and, you know, the next thing you know, there's a new policy. Yes. Um, you have to advocate for those changes. You know, I do it differently through my science and communicating mm. science, but we need more than just that. Mm. You know, we need you know, that, that, that's how change ultimately happens. It's interesting, though, some of those big companies are now actually saying that we need to price some carbon in Australia. So they are in their own way, perhaps not fast enough, and that's another story altogether, but they're actually acknowledging, in order to correct this problem, we really need a policy in place. It's just, you know, a matter of the government not actually listening to that. <laughs> so that's the thing. Change takes time. We can't expect, you know, the IPCC is saying we need to make drastic changes soon, and I completely agree with that. We, will, we also have to be realistic that, some changes take time. I mean, that's why we're pressing for so much change to be done, knowing that there is the inertia in the system. Yeah. And, you know, arguably that's why they were banging on about this 30, 40 years ago, so we can make, change, you know, make these changes in enough time to perhaps them warming to only one degree Celsius. Yes. I was shocked when I saw a, a report from 1890s 
talking about how scientists then understood that carbon could lead to an increase or could lead to an increase in temperature of the planet. Yes, yeah, yeah. So I think I think I saw the same. It was like a little snippet from a newspaper or something. Yes. Yes. But it was, actually, it was actually proven in a lab, I think, 20, 30 years before that, under the right conditions, and those conditions being what occur in the upper atmosphere, yeah. carbon dioxide basically acts as a blanket on, on the Earth. It traps yeah. energy. <laughs> it traps the energy that's radiated from the surface of the Earth just like a blanket blanket works interacting with your body. Mm. So it's it's like it's a no-brainer. You don't need to have a lot in the atmosphere for it to be an issue. It's what a lot of people forget, that our atmosphere is mainly nitrogen. They think, oh, well, you know, screw CO2. It's, it does not enough there to make an effect. But yes. then you don't need a lot of arsenic to kill yourself. So why? <laughs> <laughs> but it's just the same sort of thing. It's, it's the, you know, the, the, it's a highly concentrated dose. That's the issue. That's the issue. Yeah, right. There you go. Uh, once again, everything can be a poison as long as you get a high enough dosage. Exactly. That's even water. But, yeah. <laughs> now, I, I'd like to talk about more about your research area. So I, I grew up as a young, um, young boy in North Queensland, and it could get incredibly hot, and occasionally we get heat waves. And it seems to me now that these seem to be increasing. I don't live there anymore. Uh, Victoria burns down. Queensland just burnt down, like just shocking fires. There a, was a massive heat wave in the north of Western Australia. And I've talked to some people about this, and older people especially, and they're like, oh, it's always been this way. This is just the way. Every, it just happens, and, and we, just, we just have bad memories. What's your take on that? Is it that we have bad memories, or is something changing in our atmosphere? A bit of both. So extremes are rare by nature and extremes, you know, heat waves being one type of extreme, they are rare. They, they will occur sometimes, but they shouldn't be occurring very often. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of pushing that envelope of what we expect to see in you know, our climate and weather systems. The fact is they're occurring more often now than what they used to, and especially with heat waves, they're more intense and they last longer as well. Mm. And I remember, look, I had similar conversations with, with my dad. He grew up in southern Queensland, passed away a few years ago, but I remember having a discussion with him when he was 80 about finally come around to believe that climate change was actually an issue. And he was asking me as a professional, you know, what my opinion was, and he said, and he actually, it's the first and only time I heard him say it, but, yes, we, we never experienced heat like this when I was a child. Mm. So even then that, that conversation with with Older citizens can actually change and can change quite a bit. So it's interesting coming back to the memory thing because a lot of people tend to forget, even on a smaller scale, so even if within a couple of years, they forget that well, last season was really hot. We had a super extreme summer. This season's actually a bit colder than that, but mm-hmm. still might be above average. Therefore, climate change isn't a problem anymore. But, <laughs> that, that, and it is. It is it's, it's a problem. It's, it's something that's been proven that, you know, even having a run of 26 or 27 degree days in Sydney constantly, so mm. you know, I'm talking over a few months without a break or something lower, is actually quite extreme. Mm. Um, you don't need to have 45 degree days occurring every week for the summer to be extreme. There's other measures of it too. So there's a general increase. And the other one I've noticed, not particularly in Australia, but around the world, people say, uh, I, I want to say people, I mean politicians. The um, uh, you know, oh look, this snow. It's it's snowing outside. It's a massive oh, blizzard in America, North America. Therefore, it's not real. And yeah. is that a dangerous way of thinking? And what's wrong? What's wrong with it? It's extremely dangerous. There are so many things wrong with that that unfortunately I can't go into. But we're always going to have seasons. We're always going to have cooler periods relative to warmer periods throughout the year. That's Basically due to how the earth rotates around the sun and how it oscillates on its um, axis, we all mm-hmm. always have seasons, but they're all warming. 
some more, more quickly than others. And it's actually the cooler parts of the year that seem to be warming faster than the warmer parts of the year. And some places in the world will still have snow, even if we do get to 5 degrees Celsius. Not very many places, mind you, but mm-hmm. there still could be some snowfalls that will occur sometime, but they'll be a lot less than what they used to be, yes. and they won't occur as often. But, and the amount of snow falling won't be as much as well. You know, by, by then, by about 5 degrees Celsius, Australia won't see any snow, but some really northern and really southern parts of the world will. Sure. You've mentioned five degrees quite a few times. I was getting a little bit freaked out by three degrees. Is, yeah. Do you honestly think five degrees is where we're heading? I hope not. <laughs> yeah, this is tricky. I try not to think about it myself outside of work because mm-hmm. it's quite a daunting fact. Mm-hmm. I'd like to think that we're doing – ultimately, I'd love to think we're doing enough to limit warming to 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius, but there isn't really enough evidence that that's what's happening. Sure. But I think it's still possible that we can limit warming to 3, 3.5 degrees Celsius. Okay. That's, um, which that's... is still not great. As I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the Great Barrier Reef would be dead by then. But mm-hmm. – Mm-hmm. You know, things will suffer. People will suffer. That's, I'm, I'm not trying to negate from that. But we will still be here and it's still worth doing what we can to limit warming to that threshold. Yes. It won't, it won't be the literal end of the world. Um, no. We, we can, the human race is quite resourceful and hopefully we can do more between here and there, hopefully. Well, it's also and hoping that we can help those who, who aren't as in a good position as ourselves. Uh, yes. We are also happy, very aware of what we're doing. Not, not like, oh, we'll be fine or in a developed country or... You know, we do also need to help, you know, for example, low-lowing state, states like the Pacific Island and Bangladesh, they will see the worst impacts of climate change, and they already are. Yes. You know, we need to be aware of that and help them adapt so that they that the impacts are minimised to them as well. Yeah. I try and think of sometimes call it selfish benevolence and in the idea that if we help them, so Australia doesn't deal well with, you know, refugees at the best of times, no. unfortunately, but if you don't want refugees on your, on your shores, which they will come, if you're, if you, if you're the only one who has shores, everyone else is underwater, then, then we have to help them to make them that's stay over there. We have a moral obligation, you know? That's, yes. <laughs> I was, like, let's fix yeah. this before it's a real issue. Mm. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Well, Dr. Sarah, is there anything else that, that you think that people should know about this that everyone gets wrong, like myself gets wrong? And if there's something you could say to people that you don't normally get to say, what would it be? I think the main thing is climate change is happening now. We always tend to think of it as a future problem. That's what that's what even what I was taught at school 20 odd years ago. It's not a future problem. It is happening now. It will get worse, but there's still hope that we don't that we won't reach catastrophic impacts. We can still fix this and there's a lot we can do to actually fix it. So don't give up, be sensible and, you know, let's try and implement the change that we need to see to negate climate change. Amazing. Thank you very much, Dr. Sarah. It's been fantastic talking to you. Great. Thanks for having me, Greg. Thanks once again to Dr. Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick. It's a bit sobering, isn't it? it? It feels a bit sobering, but I liked her message, which is it's probably going to be worse than we want it to be, but it can be not as bad as it could be. Once again, it's in our hands. I didn't really want to make this podcast. I just never liked just terrifying people. It's not what I enjoy doing. I always wanted to make sure there was something that could be done. And Dr. Sarah pointed out a few of those things. Some of the other things that can be done after doing some research on my own, and I'm, I'm sorry to bring this up because I'm a vegetarian. I've made, made this comment before. And I'm not saying you should be vegetarian, though, you know, hey, why not give it a try one day? Crazier things have happened. But it has been shown that meat production is a big 
increase of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, methane, carbon dioxide, it's a problem. Maybe try something called Meat Free Mondays. Just lower your intake. It would probably do more good for the planet and probably for your bowels uh, than, <laughs> and your blood pressure and all sorts of things than nearly everything else, getting rid of straws or plastic bags in supermarkets. It's probably going to help more. So give that a go. Give that a try. But honestly, beyond that, the most important thing to remember here is it is not hopeless. It is not hopeless. We are probably going to lose the Great Barrier Reef, and that's not fun. But it's not the end of the world. You are a cog in the machine. You are a tiny, tiny cog. There's only so many things you can do. You don't have the power to change the world unless, you know, unless Elon Musk, you're listening to this, or if you're a president of a country or a president of a big corporation, something like that. You just have to do what you have to do. And the thing we're lucky enough to be involved with is a democracy. If you're involved in a democracy, you have to vote for climate action. There's many things we want to vote on, such as human rights. And these are very important things. Don't get me wrong. Animal protection. These are super important things as well. But maybe you have to draw a line in the sand and say, I am going to focus on this one issue. And that issue for me is now climate action. I'm not going to vote for politicians who don't do something about the changing climate. That's it. That's my line in the sand. Is it going to be fast enough to save the Great Barrier Reef? No, probably not. But will it be fast enough to mitigate the total horrors of five degree increase of the world's temperature? Yes, I think it will be. So consider that. Always vote for the climate. Always vote for the environment. Make sure that you're voting in that way. Now, at the start of the podcast, I said that I wasn't going to discuss climate changes and what's causing it and all that good stuff, because let's face it, the science is in. It's not a debate. And, and even pretending that it's some kind of balanced issue really just give credence to people who don't deserve it. The science is in. It's done. Okay. And if you've heard that and you're really angry at me about it, saying it's not in and you've heard this person, that person, or for whatever reason you don't believe me, that's fine. We're not enemies. I, I want to talk to you now. I'm talking to those people who don't agree with this. And I understand why. Maybe you're a bit more conservative in your political leanings and people who are conservatives like you are telling you that no, it's not a, it's not a thing. It's just a, it's, it's just not real. And so of course you're going to believe the people, your tribe, you're going to believe your tribe. So I'm just going to try and give you something which maybe push you in the right direction here. And the right direction of course is believing in climate change. I'm not trying to hide what I'm doing here. Even though governments around the world say that climate change doesn't exist, they are behaving as if climate change exists. Let that sink in for a moment. They may not be, you know, putting it through Parliament as climate change or whatever, but in some ways they are. And I'll give you a good example. This is an American example. So in August, the President of the United States signed in the John S. McCain National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2019. So $716 billion were given to the military that funds their operations, everything from the nuclear program to pay rises for troops. It also increases funds for the military to prepare for climate change. In two big areas, they're making sure that all their military bases will be able to withstand rising oceans or thawing permafrost. The only reason you would give money to organizations to do that is if you thought the seas were going to rise. And the only reason you think the seas are going to rise is that climate is warming. The other one is the, the American military is being 
funded to make sure that it can fight for resources and water in the future. It's setting itself up knowing full well that refugees will be coming from around the world to try and get to First Nations, such as Australia, such as Europe, such as America, because this is the place where the opportunities are going to be. And the American military is standing ready to be able to help slash hinder people as they try and make it to where they want to go. Once again, why? Climate change is real and the American military knows it's real. And the politicians know it's real. It's just, unfortunately, they get money from groups that don't want them to talk about it. But things are changing in the background. Don't give up on that. So consider that. If if you don't believe in climate change, ask why do the institutions, which, especially if you're American, you probably really do support the military. And hey, why not? I don't see why that's a bad thing. They're supporting climate action without calling it climate action because people in power know what's going on and you know what's going on. Remember, we're not a political podcast. Dan and I, we don't talk about politics a lot. This is not politics. This is science. And therefore, I'm just telling you what you need to tell the politicians that the science is in and you would like them to kind of look at it, please. It's going to take time. There's going to be casualties in the environment, and that's the way it is. I'm talking to everyone now, all my listeners, do not give up. If you give up and throw your hands in the air and say democracy is broken, the Nazis have won, everything is done, then you're useless to the human race. And that sounds really harsh. You need to remember this is not a sprint. This is a marathon, and it may devour 40% of your body fat. You may even start eating your own muscles <laughs> to power yourself, but you have to go on. We need you. We need you out there talking about this, spreading the word about it, it's the science of the situation. We need you out there being good citizens of the world. And if you are a good citizen of the world, then you are doing everything you can do. And I respect you so much for doing that. Don't give up. Despair leads to nothing good. You will achieve nothing and we will get nowhere together if we all just freak out and cry. There will be days you want to. Trust me, I understand that. We're going to see terrible things in the future, but we can actually mitigate these problems if we work together. And when I feel that I can't go on, that it all seems overwhelming, I think about students such as Greta Thunberg of Sweden, who went on strike from school and is now a focal point of other students striking for climate change. So Greta is 15 years old and is now telling people at the UN that, hey, maybe you should get off your butts and do something. I'll link below the, the, the story about it. It's worth a read. And in Australia, there were students who took Friday off school rallying against climate change and the fact our politicians were doing nothing. And I have absolutely applaud them. People have said, who doesn't do anything anyway? It does nothing. Who cares? Yes. Well, from little things, big things grow. And I think it's really dangerous to um, get in their way. The young people of the future. Hooray. And I have a lot of faith in them that they're doing pretty damn well. So well done. And you're doing pretty damn well, listener. Yes, you. Yes, you. I'm talking to you. You're just trying to get through life step by step. That's all you can do, right? Don't give up. All right, that's enough of that. We will see you next time on Wild Wonders Why and, of course, Smart Enough to Know Better. Thank you very much. 